Psalms chapter 8. It's on page 944 in your Blue Pew Bible. We're going to start in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's holy and true word. Let's go to God together in prayer again. Father, bless us to understand your word and live out its promises fully, richly, joyfully in our lives by your grace in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, this verse 28, certainly one of the most popular verses in all of scripture, one of the most well-known, probably the one most quoted to one another. We even see it fixed in our confession that we used in the Heidelberg, right? As one of the uh, umbrella statements about our faith that all things must work together for my salvation. The writers of the Heidelberg thought that that phrase encompassed in a majestic, full way, the whole of the Christian life. And so it was included there in the first uh, question of the Heidelberg. But there are several things that are raised by this passage and several things that we need to be sure about. Uh, One is, what is the good that is spoken of here? What is the good that is spoken of? All things work together for good. 
And then the second question is, who is this for? Now, the middle part answers or speaks to that all things work together for good. And then when you ask who it's for, it's, we're told two things, one in the beginning and one in the end. It's for those who love God, and at the end, for those called according to his purpose. And there's some relationship between those two. But there's the kind of structure of the verse. In the middle is all things work together for good. And one, it's for those who love God. Two, it's for those who are called according to his purpose. Those obviously are one and the same uh, person. But what is this good? Uh, For instance, some of us may think that the good would be exhausted by things like this. A fellow has a job or a lady has a job. And through a series of events, maybe some of it's his or her fault, maybe not, the person loses the job. And it was really traumatic because they had trained in college for this kind of work and had some years under their belt and seemed like they were headed in a good direction, but something happened with the company, they were laid off, and it's really a traumatic event. Well, they through the process, retool, perhaps retrain, perhaps even go back to school. They get into a different field of work, and after a few years, find that emotionally and even economically, it's the best thing that ever could have happened to them. So they look back and say, wow, that was, that was such a terrible thing, but look, God causes all things to work together for good. And, and I see it in my life. And in that way, it's kind of like a Monet landscape. If you've ever really viewed one of those from one foot to, as my son-in-law would say, 20 foot. You don't say feet in Jacksboro, you say foot. Um, but if you watch it at one foot, okay, uh, the, the paint is blurred, it's uh, messy, it's random. It seems to make no sense at all. It just seems pointless and messy in every way. But when you back off, and you've maybe never done this, but if you're like 20 feet away, those pictures just become crisp and clean and almost perfect in, in, in depicting the landscape. And my wife is always, she says, how do they do that? Do they have a 20-foot paintbrush, you know, so that they're looking that far away and it looks good from 20 feet, but when you get up, it's all muddy. But that's a lot of times how certain events look in our life. Looking at it closely, this just pointless, random mess of stuff that happened to me, but you get some distance and you see that it was part of a tapestry. I was looking at a few parts of the tapestry. They didn't make sense, but now as I look at the whole, it's really beautiful. It's, it's amazing, in fact. And I see why God would allow those hard things to happen to me so that good things came from it. So, for a lot of us, we would be looking for that as the good. It's always something good's going to happen. Something to make me perhaps more comfortable, more successful. Uh, something good in a tangible, physical, relational way. Now, Taking that as the definition of good, what would you say to the Iraqi Christians right now? What would you say to them about this verse, all things work together for good? 
Can you imagine taking that definition and one of them saying, yeah, all, thing work, all things work together for my family. They've just been massacred. My father was uh, beheaded. How is that working for them? What's the ultimate good? Where, where's that going to come around? You know? And for some people uh, in history now and throughout history of Christianity, it's gone from one thing to a worse thing to a worse thing. They lose their possessions. They're in prison. They finally die. So according to that initial definition, this verse doesn't work very well. This verse doesn't apply. So we have to ask, what is the good that Paul intends? And you get a little hint uh, about it from the very context because he talks so much in this context. For instance, in verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Now, in the modern idea of health and wealth gospel, that if you really trust God rightly, then health and wealth will flow your way, this verse just doesn't work, does it? Because Paul expects, anticipates, that in the midst of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, etc., that all things are working together for good. Hmm, what's the good, you see? What is the good? And then in verses 38 and 39, he says that nothing will separate us from this love, but he mentions even death there will not separate us from his love. So what is the good? That's a huge question. And are we sold out for that good? Because if we're not sold out for that good, then this passage really doesn't have anything for us, okay? If, if someone promises you that you'll get all the broccoli you want and you just despise broccoli, that's no promise, right? <laughs> now, if it's all the ice cream or pizza or whatever, okay, that's a promise. Well, this is a promise, but is my heart fixed on that promise? Do I want that promise? Does that define my life, that, that promise, that good? Well, the good is explained by Paul immediately after verse 28. So, very helpful in this regard, what this good is. And we'll have to put our, our thinking caps on just a little bit, and you certainly have to have your Bibles open, I, I would hope, to page 944, to look directly at the text that we're dealing with. Because here's the definition of the good, and this is regarded as the definition of Christianity in many ways. The definition of our lives is that all things will work together for good. And so it's important that we uh, know what Paul's talking about here. Now, you can't really separate the good from who the good is for, or whom the good is for. Because he says there in verse 28, it's for those who are called according to his purpose, for, because. So verse 29 is explaining that last phrase. People are called according to God's purpose, according to a plan that God has. Okay, 
And so then he begins to enlarge in verses 29 through 30. He is enlarging on that plan. And you can see this because down in verse 30, there's that word called again. Okay? There's the word called. So he is talking about the called, but he's also talking about this purpose by which they were called and the ultimate end to which he called them. So he begins by saying, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And the predestining has to do with finally conforming to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that Christ might be the head of a whole community of people that look just like him. That's the basic promise. In fact, God's foreknowledge and predestination had this in view so that in the end, Christ Jesus would be the firstborn of this host of people that look like him, that have his image. That's the plan, okay? That's the plan. Now, the word foreknow is that word in Scripture that talks about intimacy, like Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Or in Psalm 1-6, it talks about uh, God knowing the way of the righteous. Well, of certainly, it doesn't mean he doesn't know the way of the, the wicked. Like, you know, I don't ever know what the wicked are doing. I just don't know what they're doing, what's going on there. I just know, you know, what the righteous are. No, obviously it means I'm intimate with the righteous. I know them and I love them. My eye is upon them. Uh, like Jesus says this of the wicked, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Did he know about them? You better believe it. That's why they have to depart from him, because they practice wickedness. He knew exactly what was going on in their hypocrisy of claiming to know God, but living lives of wickedness. But he said, on the level of intimacy and relationship, I never knew you. We weren't in intimate relationship. So, as many times in Scripture, uh, God's choosing us is connected with his love for us and that's where uh, foreknow comes in that he loved us or you might say set his eye upon us and you can feel the weight of that love because he refers back to it several times for instance in verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of christ or in verse 37 nothing will separate us uh, from the love of uh, him who, uh, we're more than conquerors, through him who loved us. Or in verse 39, nothing will separate us from the love of God. So all of that's about God's love for us. And I would suggest to you that this flows from the fact that he set his love upon us before the world began. So he loved them he set his eye upon them and then predestined them to be conformed. So you might put it this way in language we might understand a little better. He planned that they would finally be conformed to Christ. So he set his love upon them and he made this plan that they will all finally be conformed to my son. And so in keeping with that love that he has for them and the plan that he has to conform them to his son, it says there in verse 30 that he called them. And always in Scripture, this is 
a, a drawing of us into relationship with God. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, He called us into fellowship with Christ Jesus. See, there's a beautiful statement of we're being brought into relationship with God. And then when he says justified, this has to do with the favor that we enjoy in God's presence. You might say a fixed favor with God. So piece this together. He sets his eye upon us. He plans to conform us to Christ. Then at a specific time, he draws us into relationship, into permanent favor with himself. And then finally, in the last words, we are glorified. And that corresponds to being made conformed to Christ, you see. It's the fulfillment of what he says. He, plan he, he uh, planned to conform us to Christ, therefore he called us, he brought us into his favor, and he glorified us. So he did it. He did what he planned. He set his eye upon us, and he didn't stop until finally we were conformed to Christ, or in other words, finally we're glorified. Finally we're brought to that beauty and position that even Christ Jesus has himself as a perfect human being. So, uh, this, this tells us what the good is. And it's not only this final conformity to Christ, but it's everything that leads to that conformity. Everything that keeps us on the way to that conformity. That is our gradual conforming to Christ in this life, our gradual uh, getting rid of more and more sin in our lives and becoming more loving in our character to the final day when we will be made perfect in the resurrection and perfectly conformed to Christ. That's the good that God has promised to do in your life. And he says, every single thing in your life, all things will work together to help promote that final end in your life of your being conformed to Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Along the way, the text was, uh, somebody, some people added God to the text in Romans 8, 28, because it seemed like it should have God, that God works all things together. But several people have pointed out the fact that uh, he left it all things work together to show the transcendent power of God, that everything is under the control of God. <laughs> all things work together, especially in this context Suffering, because that is the context. Suffering, tragedy, tribulation, persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, death itself. All of these things, even the worst things that happen to you, all things will be used by God to promote this likeness to Christ that will finally end up in perfect uh, conformity to Jesus Christ. So, the question is, is that what I want? Imagine this in a typical health and wealth context of being told that you may lose your health and all your wealth, you may lose your freedom, 
You may be thrown into prison. You may be starved. You may die. But all things will work together for good. Be like, doesn't compute. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. Where's the health and the wealth, right? Where, is, where are the goods that are going to come to me? So it's interesting. We talk about goods sometimes. We'll say, uh, if you have a picnic you'll, and somebody comes in with their basket and say, have you got all the goods? And that means everything that is part of the picnic. Or you may say of a certain guy or a certain girl, man, he's got all the goods, right? She has all the goods, whether it's looks or talent or whatever. Or a car, I got this new car, it's got all the goods, right? So sometimes for us, all things working together for good means the goods, you know, the goods of life. But God comes along and says, the goods may be there, they may not be there. And sometimes they do come in that way, and they're my part of my blessing. But I promise you the good. I promise you the ultimate good of reigning with my son, of being, as he says earlier in verse 17 of this chapter, being a co-heir with Christ Jesus. You see, we're talking about measly goods of this world He's talking about eternal royalty of being made glorious like Jesus Christ. That's where God's going with your life. That's what he planned from eternity to bring you to final royalty. And as he says early in this chapter, as part of a new heavens and new earth, a renewed creation. And as a part of it is the redemption of your body so that your body itself becomes immortal. <laughs> Strengthened so that it will never be sick, it will never be weak. It will be glorious like Jesus Christ's body. God says all things will work together to promote that end in your life that you will be conformed to Jesus Christ. Now that is what our hope is. And I want to... I want to get to this other phrase, to those who love God, by talking about Paul's desire for Jesus. And I want you to turn with me, because we have to look at this a bit, in page 981, Philippians chapter 3. And we're not going to read it in detail, but I want to point out a few things that Paul says to show his desire to conform to Jesus Christ. And I would set this before you as our model for conforming to Christ in this life and in the next life. Paul first in uh, verses uh, 4 through 6 talks about his former life as a Pharisee and how he was blameless in his law-keeping. But then in verse 7 he says... I had much gain in terms of being a Pharisee, in current terms of my religious standing, but I counted all of that as just loss. It was all in the loss column for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this I've suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. I count things as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So, everything for the sake of Christ, 
to know Christ, to gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in Him, in Christ. Not having my own righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ. But then notice verse 10. Again, that I may know Him, that I may know the power of His resurrection, share in His sufferings, become like Him in His death, and attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here's Paul. Everything that I was before is behind me. All that is before me, in fact, my new means of righteousness, my whole definition of who I am, is to know Christ and gain Christ and have Christ and become like Christ, even to the point of his sufferings and his death. How's that for health and wealth? (laughs) you imagine the difference in those two things? Longing for this conformity to conformity to Christ, even longing that I might, if called for, suffer with him and die a death that is like his for his sake, so that I would attain the resurrection from the dead. And so, what love to God means in Romans 8:28, those who love God. It means those who love God in Christ. We've come to admire Christ. You see? We've come to adore Him. We've, we've come to long for Him, to want to be like Him, to want to exhibit Him in this world, to want to make Him known in this world. We are an admiration society, an admiration fellowship, and what do we admire? We admire Christ. And so when we hear that God will work all things together to conform us now and ultimately to Christ, we would say then, all my dreams will come true. All my dreams will come true. Is that what you're saying, God? Yes, all your dreams will come true. Because my dream is Christ. My dream is to be like Christ My my dream is to be conformed to him finally and ultimately. You mean I could exhibit the same righteousness and beauty of Christ? Yes, and nothing will stand in your way. Nothing will hinder it. Everything will be used in my hand to promote that final conformity. Then, in the words of Paul, nothing is against me then. No, no. Nothing is against you because God is for you. I mean, all good things are going to flow toward you. Yes, all good things are going to flow toward you. And you get the feel here of nothing separating me from the love of God. You see, nothing separating me from that favor and active goodness of God in every part of my life. Nothing will separate you from that. And it's so easy to think when terrible things happen to you that God must have turned away from me. I'm separated from his love. His favor is not on me anymore. No. No, this is rooted in eternity. He set his love on you from eternity and planned and drew you to himself and put his favor upon you. And it even says glorified in the past tense to indicate it's as good as done. Those he glorified. You said, well, we're not glorified yet. It's as good as done. They're glorified. They're done. It's done. It will happen. And so his favor is 
upon you. And here's an interesting final twist to mention. We said that in this life, sometimes the goods will come and sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll all be taken away from you in, in the terrible, terrible case of the atrocities done upon these Christians in Iraq. Your life can end violently and terribly. But the wonderful thing about glorified and conformed to Christ and being co-heirs with Christ is the goods are promised you. All to come to you in the end. Because you will reign with Christ Jesus as kings and queens. And all your tears will be wiped away. And only good will be yours in that final day. And when Jesus said... Don't set your heart on the treasures of this world, but the treasures of the net. He's not kidding about treasures. He's not kidding about true creational wealth that is deeded over to you. He's not kidding when he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Okay, that's not billions of dollars. That's not a few houses or eight mansions. It's the earth. It's the earth. And so even the promise of good in terms of temporal good is at the worst delayed until that final day of resurrection when, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours. All things are yours. So, brothers and sisters, may this encourage you. And, and, and if you're here and you don't know Christ, I would call you... Come under the protection of this Christ. Come under the care of this Christ. Come under the care of this God, this noble God, who spends himself for our good at the greatest cost of himself, to himself, by sacrificing his own son. Won't you put yourself under the care of this God and submit yourself to say, Lord, fix my heart. On this ultimate good, not the many idols of good that I have my heart fixed on, but this ultimate good of being like God, of being like Christ, and manifesting that goodness and love in this dark world. Lord, Lord, make me like Christ. Let us pray. O oh Lord, enable us to believe your glorious promise that all things work together for the good of your people, that we may live out that trust and faith every day of our lives by your grace. Amen.